The reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. I didn't hear as many thanks be to God for that one. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. Uh, if this is your first Sunday here, I'm just going to trust that the Lord is sovereign, um, that you are ordained to be here, and it's a good thing. Um, Um, when I first uh, read this passage um, a few weeks ago, uh, I just had that like, ah, great, um, this is, this is going to be fun. Um, but as I studied that text and um, prayed over it and let it kind of pour into me, um, I became really excited to teach it um, because it, it really points us to Jesus. And I just want to state from the beginning that that's my goal for you today is to point you to Jesus. Um, as always, um, that's what this book does, uh, is it shows us who he is. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into, uh, you could say a lot about this text, you could go down a lot of different roads. Uh, I really want to stick to what these, uh, this section says and how it points us to him. Um, we're, we're beginning the, a new section really, uh, so this is the fourth part of uh, of five in in the book of one corinthians we've we've given this title the or this section the title the church gathered and um, because paul's really he's transitioning uh, in this section he's been talking about how members of the church are, are to operate kind of outside it, it, out in the world to to talking about how members of the church are to operate uh, inside the church with one another and um, so in the previous passage that joyful denial section um, he was talking about how members of the church are to exercise their rights and their liberties in, outside of the context of, of the worship gathering, out in the world. Uh, and now he's talking about 
how we should be exercising our rights and our liberties within the church, inside the context of the worship gathering. Really, over the next four, ch- four chapters, um, Paul's going to cover a, a number of different issues related to life of the church gathered. Uh, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, uh, prophecy and tongues, orderly worship, and today, head coverings and hair length and hair arrangement. Um, hands up if you felt at any point in that passage and uh, that scripture reading awkward or nervous. Hands up if you felt awkward or nervous at any point. My hand is up. Um, I think a lot of you are liars. Um, the, I think the reason we, we feel awkward, I think the reason sometimes we might even feel a bit angry, uh, is when the Bible starts to speak directly into uh, one of our like hot topic culture, uh, topic, hot topic issues of our specific cultural context. Um, so we don't really get nervous when, when the passage talks about should or shouldn't we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols, because that's not really a, a big deal to us. Uh, we don't necessarily get nervous when uh, the Bible talks about caring for the poor. That's just like a normal thing. But as soon as the Bible starts to talk about sexuality or gender, things start to get a little bit intense. Um, and the reason is because sexuality and gender is the biggest issue in our specific cultural context. Um, and if you land on the wrong side of that debate, then you are a bigot, right? Um, and, and so we don't want to land on the wrong side of that debate. So a lot of times we just avoid talking about it. Let's just skip to chapter 12 and, and, and dig into that. Um, we're not going to. The, like, why even preach this, if you have that question? The answer is quite simple, and it's because it's there. And because we believe that, that the Bible is, is wholly God's word, and all of it points us to Jesus. Um, Hebrews 4.12, I think is on the screen, uh, says, The word of God is alive and it's active, sharper than any uh, double-edged sword, preach, uh, piercing, into the, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, or, or it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Uh, Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. Um, so we, 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 we don't even just read the Bible, we want the Bible to read us. What I mean by that is, is we want all of it, we want to engage with all of it, even the bits that are, are difficult uh, to our specific cultural context. And I've said that phrase, specific cultural context, uh, a few times, and I hope you picked up on that, because I want to encourage us to engage today with humility. And um, what I mean by that is I, we, we don't want to elevate our specific culture over the rest of the world's cultures. And um, it would be incredibly arrogant of us to, to sit here and to, and to think, well, uh, our Western culture is more advanced or it's more progressive uh, than the rest of the world's. Therefore, everyone else just needs to catch up. It'd be incredibly arrogant of us to, to be so Western-centric that we then look down on either the, the, the cultures through history or even the cultures around the world today that might not line up with us. We want to have, we want to have humility uh, because in different cultures, uh, this book may say something that, that is uh, more offensive or more scandalous uh, about a different topic. So uh, in certain cultures, sexuality and gender might not be that offensive, uh, but the idea of, of loving your neighbor as yourself might. 
The idea of sitting down at a table with someone different you might be a scandalous idea. That, that might be the thing that, that starts to get things heated in that culture. Um, does the Bible confront all of us? Does it kind of penetrate and pierce all of us? Uh, does it judge the thoughts and the attitudes of everyone? Yes, uh, but depending on your specific cultural conduct, uh, context, some areas of your life may be more uh, pierced than others. It might be speak more into it. Might be more uh, dividing and cutting for you than than others. Um, I had a, a Bible lecturer who who reminded us often of a, uh, a, a mythical uh, a character called Pro- Procrustes. And Procrustes had a, an, an iron bed. And Procrustes would invite passers-by to, to spend the night and to sleep on his bed. Uh, but if the, if the sleeper didn't fit his, his iron bed, he would make them fit. So if they were too long, he would chop off bits of their leg to make them fit. If they were too short, he would stretch them out. And the point is, a lot of times, the danger is that we use culture as a Procrustean bed uh, to, to interpret Scripture. So if Scripture doesn't fit our cultural context, we'll make it fit. We'll cut bits off. We'll stretch it out. What we want to do is use Scripture as the Procrustean bed, that, that we adjust us to Scripture, that, that, that we change, that we don't change Scripture. Uh, Michael Yusuf says, the Bible doesn't change. It changes us. If we disagree with something we read in Scripture, it's not the Bible that needs to change, it's us. We must re-examine our opinions and change them in light of God's unchanging Word. I'm just going to invite you to pray again as we ask for help. Um, I'm going to invite you to um, extend your hands out, uh, open palms, uh, just as a a physical posture of an internal uh, attitude uh, as we approach Him humbly and in stillness before a perfect and holy God. Uh, Father, we want to uh, just recognize again our, uh, our humanity, that we are creation, that you are creator, that we are limited, that we see not the whole picture, but you do, that, that you are perfect and all your ways are perfect. Lord, help us to approach today with humility, with open hands, Lord, ready to receive, ready to be, uh, uh, receive correction, to receive commendation like Paul does here. Lord, show us what we are doing well and show us where we need to change, Lord. You are perfect and you are good. We thank you for accepting us. We thank you for loving us. Spirit, help us today. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. In his name, amen. Um, let's look at the passage. Um, on the surface, the surface, when you first read it, it can be a little bit complicated uh, to us uh, because some of, the, uh, some of the examples that Paul is using uh, are really specific to their culture and are completely foreign to us. So he talks about head a lot. He uses that word 14 different times. He's addressing uh, the issue of head attire and hair arrangement. Um, which I'll try to explain as we go along. But I think if you, if you just look at how he begins and how he ends this section, you get a sense of what he's really talking about, his main focus. Uh, so look at verses 2 and verses 16. Verses 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. 
I'll explain what he means by traditions in a minute, but basically he's saying, well done for remembering me and my teachings for the church. And then in verse 16, he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So he's, he's encouraging the Corinthians to conform their worship practices to the, the universal church of, of Jesus, that they should look like Jesus' church. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I think Paul's main uh, point in this passage, because he, he begins and he ends by talking about the church, he's, he's calling them to evaluate their worship gathering practices to ensure that all due attention is, is drawn to God and no undue attention is, is drawn to members of the church. All attention should be directed to God, not to our name, but to your name, Lord. Uh, glory, uh, giving glory to God in all you do, like we learned last week. Um, the worship gathering is, is about making much of God, not making much of ourselves. Uh, John the Baptist says about he needs to decrease so that the Lord can an increase. Um, so, we're, we're, so if we are operating in a way that is preventing that from happening, then, we, then something is wrong and we need correction, and which is Paul's goal in writing to them here. And even though he's going to offer correction, I love how he starts. He's, he's such a good pastor. He starts so lovingly and, and gently here. He begins with like, well done. I commend you for, for remembering me and keeping my, my teachings but, in verse 3, he says, there's, there's this one area that I want to talk to you about, that, that I want to help correct you. Um, so he commends them for remembering him as, as an apostle. And so remember that role of apostle at, at the time was extremely important. It's how Paul, he, he introduces himself in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul uh, called by the will of God to be an apostle of, of Christ Jesus. And the, that role carries with it this apostolic authority in the church um, and he says, well done for remembering me in that way, the remembering my role, and for maintaining the traditions I delivered to you. And that line is a bit funny to us, that that language of traditions being delivered or being passed on, it, it was really a rabbinical language. So it was this, this idea of a, of a rabbi passing on a, a set of teachings or a set of traditions, they were called, to their disciple, uh, a disciple would follow, follow their rabbi and, and, and receive their traditions. So Paul is the rabbi and the church is the, is the disciple receiving in, in this way. And remember, even in their culture, which was basically non-literary, the majority of people weren't reading. Um, so there's this fundamental importance of reliable oral traditions in this way that, that, that really took on this added emphasis that we not we don't necessarily understand because we have God's word um, especially Paul's apostolic traditions being passed on to the church they were hugely important at the time um, some scholars would say that that Paul's traditions being passed on like included the gospel but were also the outworking of of that gospel his traditions were how the church was to live in light of the gospel does that make sense that, that Paul commends them for remembering his teachings in this way? Overall, you're doing a good job. But, he says, there's this one thing that I, that I want to talk to, you, talk to you about. There's this one area where you're actually straying from my teachings, my traditions. Uh, one area where you're, you're, you're robbing God of his glory and, and we're swaying into you being, uh, attention being drawn to you instead of to the Lord. Um, and, and we see that the area that they're going astray in has to do with how they're presenting themselves 
during the worship gathering, um, and you have this talk about head coverings and arrangement, hair arrangements. And this is where we, we get lost really quickly or, or confused really quickly or unnecessarily angry too quickly because this topic of, of head coverings and hair length and hair arrangements and how they relate to shame and glory is completely foreign to us. It's really specific to their, their, their context. Um, but, but here's the, un, there is an underlying principle that Paul gives them that we want to be able to see and apply to, to our um, worship gatherings in our uh, lives, in our context. Here's the underlying principle. Here's Paul's main point, the thesis of his passage, which I think is on the screen, uh, Jason, um, is that, this, that sexual differences are part of God's good purposes in creation and therefore should not be obscured in worship. Sexual differences are part of God's good purposes in creation and therefore should not be obscured in worship. Um, I'll phrase it in a different way, that, you, that God created you in his image, male and female, and part of the way we glorify him in worship is by holding on to those sexual distinctives. And Paul is saying that some of the Corinthians were going astray in this area, that, that instead of holding on to their sexual differences in worship, their actions were actually blurring their distinctions between male and female. And, and he's pointing out that their blurring of male-female difference uh, was, was not glorifying to God, but it was also not honoring to one another. So there's this similarity to last week's passage that I want you to see. Last week, uh, we saw that Paul, um, we saw the Corinthians were, were uh, free to use their liberties and their freedoms as long as it glorified God and was good for their neighbor, the, the, the other and the parallel here is, is, is um, they were using their liberties and their freedom in such a way that they were failing to do the same thing. They were failing to glorify God, and they were actually dishonoring uh, the other, which in this case was their spouse. Let me give you a bit of cultural uh, background uh, to their context to help us understand the problem, and then we'll look at Paul's uh, correction for them. What's the deal with their hair? Um, we've, obviously, there's this... A significant cultural distance between us and, and the Corinthian church. I'm um, just going to read you a section from uh, Paul Barnett's commentary on 1 Corinthians because uh, he's an expert and a scholar and, and I'm not. So um, he wrote, in Greco-Roman culture, uh, women typically had long hair and men short hair. A woman, uh, a woman whose hair was cut very short was usually passing herself off as a man whether in a lesbian relationship or as a fugitive man seeking to avoid abduction, uh, uh, sorry, a fugitive woman seeking to avoid abduction and rape in times of war, it was a matter of shame for a woman to be of masculine appearance by being shaved or shorn. That's verse 6. Thus, the length of hair at that time denoted a person to be man or a woman. Pause there. Careful not to eye roll at this point. Paul, we're not even commenting on their culture. We're just saying this is how it is. Um, it, it, just because hair length has nothing to do in our culture with male and female necessarily, it doesn't mean that it didn't for them. And we need to respect the way their culture worked. Uh, it does, just because it, that's not how it works now doesn't mean that we can just pass this off as being bigoted and, and ridiculous. Paul said that, that long hair dishonors a man, whereas a, a woman's hair arranged up as a mantle or as a covering is for her glory in verse 14 to 15. So in Corinth, 
hair length was a mark of maleness and femaleness, a distinction that Paul didn't want to see blurred in their community. So what were they doing wrong? Um, Apparently, they were blurring the lines of their male and female difference. Uh, Verse 4 says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So some of the men were wearing head coverings and or growing their hair long in a way that that reflected uh, the the attire worn by pagans in their idolatrous worship in the temple. So um, the pagan priests would pull their togas up over their head to pray uh, in in the temple. And and as we just pointed out, they're they're growing their hair long um, because of their because the way their culture worked made them look more female than, than male. In um, verse 5 says, But every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as, as if her head were shaven. So some of the women in the, in the, in the church were eschewing the, the common cultural practice of wearing their hair up and or covered in some sort of way during the worship gathering. Uh, in freedom, they allowed their hair to, to hang down on their shoulders. And this actually applied that they were available. So hair up, partially covered in their culture, was a sign of, of that they were married. They were a sign of being a wife. Uh, it, it's, it's just how their culture worked. So by wearing their hair down, they were actually presenting themselves as if they were unmarried and, and therefore dishonoring their husbands. is an attempt to move past the, the, the cultural norms of their time. I hope that makes sense of that little cultural background of, of what Paul is saying here. Um, if you look back on, on, on the letter so far, what we've seen is that the Corinthians were obsessed with freedom and they were enamored with glory. Obsessed with their freedoms and their liberties, but also enamored with glory. Um, so if, think back on the letter so far. At the beginning, they're, they're fighting over who has the better leader. Um, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, uh, Peter, Christ. Um, who, was, who had the wisest and the most eloquent uh, uh, leader? They had this culture of, of honor, of prestige, uh, of glory, of being at the top. And all through the letter, Paul's been reminding them of this upside-down kingdom of God. That, that, that um, It's not about being eloquent. It's, 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 it's about, the kingdom's actually about serving. The kingdom's actually about suffering. It's about surrendering your rights and your freedoms for the sake of your brother or sister. Like they've got the order wrong constantly. First comes suffering, Paul says. First comes being at the bottom. First comes serving. And then comes glory. And here they are again. They, they, they seem to be enjoying this, uh, this scandalous freedom of worship while neglecting the scandalous order of worship. Let me explain that further. In their Greco-Roman culture, the church was actually an a extremely progressive cultural institution. The, the, the freedom that was found in the church was scandalous uh, to their culture. Women were actually encouraged to, be, to take part in the worship gathering. They were encouraged to pray and to prophesy. Verse 5, he says, but every wife who prays or prophesies, he's assuming that this is happening. He's, not, he's actually, it's interesting, he's not approaching this in a legalistic sense that something's going wrong here, so we need to stop it. We need to stop the freedoms. He doesn't say that. He's, he, he, women are, are encouraged to, to, to pray and prophesy. Um, they, the, the freedom in the church was scandalous in, in contrast to the Jewish synagogue, 
where women weren't even considered full members. They, they, the women actually were, they sat behind a veil separate from the men. But in the Christian church, women are, are full members. They're full participants in the worship gathering. This is scandalous, unheard of at the time. The text does say stuff that, that we tend to kind of bristle at. But you also have to acknowledge that it says some incredible things about the full equality and the interdependence of both men and women. It actually starts way back in Genesis. Genesis 1, 20, 27, this creation story. It says, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So humans were, were created to be representatives of God here on this earth. To, to, uh, to reveal to God, uh, to, sorry, to re- reveal who God is to the rest of creation, to, to go out and, and bear his image in this way. And we're told that God's image is found in male and female. So it, that means if you, if you take all the men away, then you fail to have the full image of God. You have this kind of distorted half image of God. If you take the women away, put them behind a veil, you fail to have the full image He created male and female to reveal together who God is to the rest of creation. I think that's why Paul is so concerned about their blurring the lines of sexual differences here. He's saying when you do that, you're failing to be proper image bearers. His glory is, is not on display when you do that. In verses 11 and 12, he goes on to, to, he calls them to recognize their interdependence. He says, in the Lord, woman is, not, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman. He says, all things are from God. And if God has made you equal and, and interdependent in this way, then it must be good. And this, this understanding of interdependence and equality would have been scandalous and unheard of. It challenged the hierarchical society in which women were understood as less than second-class citizens. Put them behind a veil. The equality and the interdependence of, of the sexes afforded the Corinthians this scandalous freedom in worship. I want, to see, want you to see the, the beauty of that, the importance of that, 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 of what Christ has brought us into. However, we learn from the Corinthians that it's possible to place an overemphasis on freedom and liberality that we ignore the two questions that Paul asked us to consider. What's glorifying to God and what's good for the other? We get, they, uh, the Corinthians get so caught up in the, their scandalous freedom of worship, which is good, that they neglect to see that there's a scandalous order of worship. Let's look at the scandalous order of worship. And just like in the previous passage, Paul's purpose is not to, to cause the Corinthians to completely abandon the, their freedoms and liberties. That'd be uh, legalism. His, his, per, his goal is to, is to help them to direct, uh, to, to best exercise their liberties in corporate worship in a way that's glorifying to God and, and building up that's good for the other, in, in which case, uh, in this example, is, is their husband. And this is where we begin to bristle, isn't it? Love when you talk about freedom. Freedom, liberty, on board. 
I hate when you start to talk about order. Back in verse 3, remember Paul's been warning them that they're drifting from this teaching, this tradition. So he reminds them of it again. He says, but I want, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And that's the sentence that, that begins to rile us up, um, especially the, that middle part, the head of every wife is her husband. What is Paul saying? What is Paul not saying? Um, let me start by saying what Paul is not saying. I put it on the screen in that way because I want you to, to see the order of it is unusual, isn't it? The head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. He's talking about father-son relationship here. I think the order is purposeful. Because I, I, I don't think that Paul, what he's trying to do is, he's not trying to paint this hierarchical order uh, to show that women are inferior or, or that women are furthest away from God. That, that women somehow need their husbands to gain access. If he wanted to do that, then I think he would have put that second line at the beginning so it has a proper flow in that, in that way, that it would be woman, man, Christ, God. But he, he's not doing that because he's not saying that women are inferior. We, we've just talked about that, male, female, in the beginning, created in his image, male and female, equally uh, in, in God's image, equally his glory, uh, interdependent uh, 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 on one another. He's not saying they're inferior. The second thing Paul isn't saying is, is, is that every man is the head of every woman. No, when you read the rest of the passage, particularly verses 8 and 9, we see that Paul's, he's clearly using the, the creation and the marriage of Adam, of Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and 2 as background for his text to support his argument. Uh, and we, so we should understand that he's, he's speaking specifically to husbands and wives here. It's a little bit tricky because in the Greek, the word for man is the same as the word for husband. The word for woman is the same for wife. But I think when you see the context of, of, uh, of Adam and Eve uh, in his argument, he's, he's speaking about husbands and wives here. I think this is why the this relational picture he's painting in this verse of, of who's submitting to who, it is, is, it's a specific truth for a specific um, uh, situation or idea that he's speaking into. What I mean by that is that Paul could have stated a broader truth. He, not necessarily something that's more true, but a broader truth. So he could have said that, that Christ is the head of the church, which he does say later in Ephesians several times, and which is true, which also includes women. So, so Christ is the head of women in this way. He doesn't say that, though. He could have said that, that Christ is the head over everything, which he also says in Ephesians 1.22, but he doesn't. Are those things true? Absolutely. But he doesn't paint that broad picture here. Instead, he gives us this specific truth for this specific uh, situation. Because he's speaking to, to husbands and wives, and he says, the way you were created, I want you to relate to one another in this way. And I want you to relate to one another in your worship gathering in this way as well. I'm not going to get too deep into gender roles. Um, firstly, because I don't think this passage speaks too directly into that. Secondly, because we don't have time. We're going to be pushed for time today. And it's just too much to say. But here's the point that I do want to get across. 
Look at verse 3 again. We spend a lot of time being, feeling awkward about that middle line, husbands being the head of wives. But I want to shift our main focus onto the third line, the head of Christ is God. I want that to be our focus for this, uh, for this morning. Because remember, Paul's not trying to show that women are inferior uh, to men. He's trying to remind them of the importance and the beauty of their relational order. He's reminding them of that by pointing them to God. He's showing us that this relational order of, of a husband leading his wife and a wife uh, submitting to, his, to her husband is actually exemplified by Jesus. He's saying that, that our relational order is, is actually rooted in Trinitarian order. So he ends by, in verse 3 by saying, the head of Christ is God. That means that whatever Paul does mean by the head of every uh, wife as her husband, it cannot be understood as downplaying or threatening her stance as an equal because Christ also has a head. He cannot mean that a wife is inferior to her husband because Christ is not inferior to his father. A wife is not less important than her husband because Christ is not less important than his father. A wife is not less glorious, less powerful, less capable than her husband because Christ is not less glorious, less powerful, or less capable than his father. We're shown in scripture that the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around, they are equal in being and essence but they willfully choose to fulfill different functions and roles for the purpose of communicating divine communal love. This divine communal love that's eternal, that's perfect, they, com- they, they communicate that by taking on different roles and playing different functions. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This means that Jesus is all glorious. He's all powerful. He's all capable. And yet we see him joyfully choose to submit himself to his father's headship. This is where we need to have our open hands again, church. Because when we read this passage through our cultural lens, we read it as Paul saying something about the essence of women. And he is, saying that, he is saying nothing about anyone's essence here. He's pointing us to Jesus. He's showing us the beauty of our relational differences and order actually has roots in the way God is in relation with himself, Father, Son, Spirit. It's rooted in Trinitarian order. And again, it's part of us being made in his image male and female, created to reflect what God is like to the world, what, what God's perfect communal love is like to the world. He's saying that our relationships are meant to reflect Him. They're meant to show us how Father, Son, and Spirit operate and experience this beautiful communal love. I think when you look at husband and wife relationships from that angle, it actually frees us to see the, the beauty of God's design in creational and relational order. It shows us that God's scandalous order of relationships shouldn't be a burden that we have to live with, but a privilege to be lived out. That we get to show the world who God is. 
God created human, human beings in his image, male and female, completely equal in their, in their being and their essence, but with, with differences and, and complementary roles. Members of each uh, gender have the privilege to uniquely display God's image to the world. And Paul's point in this passage is that even though they are completely equal, there is an order of creation. And this is what he points out in verses 7 to 9. He says, For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for, for man. Pause here. Again, he's not... He's not Stating a broad truth again, he's, 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 he's speaking a, a specific truth into a specific situation because he's not saying, he can't be saying that women aren't the glory of God, that only men are. It's not true. He, we, we've already, men and women created to be his image bearers, to, created to, to bear his image and his glory. They're equal in this. What he's doing in verses 8 and 9 is he's, he's, he's simply... He, I, I don't even think he's, he's making comment here. He's just pointing back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he's, he's simply reminding them of the creational order back then. He's not saying anything scandalous. He's not saying anything new here. He's just taking them back to Genesis 1 and talking about the way men and women were created by God in Genesis. And when you go back to Genesis 2, Eve was created actually in light of Adam's lack of a suitable mate. So humanity was, was incomplete in a way without her. Adam lacked something. He needed help. In, in Genesis 2.18, the Hebrew is, is literally a helper. So Eve was, God gave him Eve. He's, Paul's reminding them of this creational order that, that Adam did come first, but that he lacked a mate. So Eve came, was given as, as his helper. This is the, the way that they were created. And again, it's so hard not to bring our cultural biases into that interpretation of that. Because we read that as Eve, Eve being the helper means that she's like his, his maid of some sort. She's, she's there to assist Adam accomplish his goals, which is nonsense. Paul's making the point of creational and relational order. That there, there is a, a headship element involved in, 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 in a way, but, but it's in a way that shows that they are both equal and interdependent. Because Adam couldn't do it on his own. He lacked something. He needed someone. And I love the way uh, Tim Keller explains this idea of being a helper. Um, he, he says it's similar to the way it, um, if one of his children come and 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 ask him for help with their algebra, which shows how smart he is, because I couldn't help anybody with algebra, um, dreading when my kids have to need my help for maths. But um, it's like him helping his, his child with, with their algebra. He has something that the children needs. He, the, the child lacks something. He, he's, he, in this situation, he's actually smarter than the child. But in order to, to help the child, in order to be a helper, he has to lovingly become a servant to him. He, he's not less than them. He actually has something to offer that they don't have, but he lovingly and humbly serves them. He, in love, he becomes their helper. So God creates Eve to, to, to help Adam. And, and when he finally lays his eyes on her, he says that famous line, of, at last, 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So when God looks at man, he sees his image. When, when man looks at women, he, he sees his image. When God looks at women, he sees his image. But there's this, there's this beautiful relational order there. Stephen Um says, when Christians display this creational order in worship and in marriage, God is pleased. Gender, gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated. And remember Paul, uh, last week, Paul's rule for them, when, when celebrating and enjoying their freedoms and their liberties, to always use this, this law of love. So this means they always are to ask first, does this glorify God and is this good for the other? Not seeking my own good, but the good of the other, thereby glorifying God. And that seems to be where they're going wrong in their worship gathering here. They're, they're praying and they're prophesying like they should, but they're doing it in a way that's actually dishonoring to the one that they should be submitting to. Specifically, men don't dishonor God by adopting idolatrous dress and worship and also blurring your sexual distinctives. Women, don't, honor, don't dishonor God and your husbands by adopting dress that calls your marital status into question. It's specific for them. Again, the, the hair thing is lost on us, it, it, but it wouldn't have been for them. That's why he's, he's saying this. In our culture, hair, not important. In their culture, hair is very important. And again, we need to respect that. In their culture, wives wore their hair up and covered as a sign that they were married. So if they took off their shawl, it meant that the woman was essentially saying, I'm not too concerned with the relationship with my husband. I'm praying and I'm prophesying, but I'm doing it in a way that says I'm available. And Paul's saying, don't you see how that's dishonoring to your husband? The only thing I can think of that's similar for us is maybe like wedding rings. So we, typically we, you get a wedding ring when you exchange rings when you get married. And, and this ring uh, reminds me of my love for my wife, uh, of our union. But it also shows others that, I, that I'm a taken man, that, that I love my wife, that I take that, that relationship serious. It's the only thing I can think of. So are, are they going into, would it be like us? going into our worship gathering, taking our ring off first, um, and kind of dishonoring, not taking that, that relationship serious. I don't know exactly why they were choosing to do this. Um, I can think of two reasons. Um, firstly, it could have been that, that over-realized eschatology, and we talked about this back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8 is that section where he said, already you've become rich. Already you've, you have all you want. All, you've become kings without us. And then he goes on to explain this like suffering first before glory mentality. They, they seem to have wanted to go straight to like the, the glory aspect of God's kingdom, which is coming, which will be glorious. But Paul is reminding them that, hey, don't go there too soon. We're in the present age. And in the present age, first comes suffering before glory, just like Jesus. Possibly they're doing that here again. Um, possibly they, they heard what Jesus said in Mark 12, 25, where Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So in, in the fully realized heaven, we won't relate to one another in husband and wife relationship. In the fully realized kingdom, uh, Christ is the spouse of the church. Um, maybe they misunderstood Paul. 
when he said in Galatians 3 that we're one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, which talks about our identity in Christ. But they're possibly overreacting to their freedom and their liberty in Christ, reaching for end glory when, when we won't necessarily relate to one another as, as, as husbands and wives anymore. This kind of throwing off of their relational order in freedom. Possibly it was something simpler and more innocent than that. Like the, the church gathered in homes. And possibly the, uh, the, the woman who was um, hosting that, that gathering, um, maybe she didn't have her hair up and covered like she would have out in public. Could have been something simple like that. We don't know, but whatever the case, Paul is saying, listen, it's important for you to recognize your freedom in worship. But be thoughtful and careful not to neglect the created order of your relationships. That the created order of your relationships are, uh, 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 have, are purposeful in this present age. Right now, they're part of the way we reflect God's nature and, his, and, and actually glorify his name. Is Paul saying it's sinful for all men to, to wear long hair? No, Ethan in the back. Is he saying it's sinful for, for, for women to cut their hair short? No. He's, he's, you're, you're, you're free in Christ. You're free from any law. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But his point here is, is don't unnecessarily scandalize your, your cultural order. Think, think about this in terms of, of their freedoms and their liberties. And they're laying down their rights for the sake of what's helpful and what's good in a specific situation. That's what we looked at last week. He's saying, don't unnecessarily scandalize those around you. Yeah, like all things are lawful. Your hair doesn't really matter. You're, you're free from the law. But in certain situations, it might be best to lay down that freedom for the sake of glorifying God and, and for the good of those around you. And this is how he finishes in, in verses 13 to 15, by appealing to their, their cultural practices. He says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? For us, we would say, don't care. But for them, the answer is no. Does not nature te- itself teach you that a man wears long hair it is a disgrace for him? In our culture, it's not a disgrace, but for them it was. But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for, as a covering. Th- that word nature simply means the way things work. It's, this, is your cultural, uh, this is how your culture works. And he's like, don't unnecessarily scandalize it. I think he would say the same to us in our context. It would obviously not be the same example, but the principle would be the same. And... I look forward to, uh, as your MCs uh, meet this week, to, to unpack that a little bit more, what that actually is for us. Maybe it is an attire thing. Maybe um, when you're putting clothes on, are you, enjoying, are you enjoying your freedom? But are you also asking yourself, is this honoring to, to those around me and honoring to God? Um, another example I, I thought of is, is maybe it's the way that we speak to one another and relate to one another in our speech. Are you honoring one another and God in your speech? And I, have a, I have a friend in church who, who would often call me um, honey or sweetie in like a text as a guy. Um, and I think this, this speaks into that in a way. It's one of those gray areas. doesn't really matter. Um, but, but if our goal is to build one another up in Christ... 
don't call me sweetie. <laughs> like, my, only my wife should call me that. I, I, I know she wouldn't appreciate anyone else, male or female, calling me honey. So let's honor one another and glorify God by not blurring those lines in that situation. That's one example. Again, this, this surrendering your rights, laying aside your freedom... Always be asking, what's going to honor those around me? What's going to glorify God? I'm not going to seek my own good here. I'm going to seek the good of the other. And all I do, especially here when I'm coming to the worship gathering, how can I not seek my own good but the good of the other? How can I glorify God by enjoying the scandalous freedom of worship that he's made available to me, but to do so within the order that God has set out in creation? an order that actually leads to maximum human flourishing and most reflects his own nature and his love. Just as we close, how do we do it? And how do we faithfully live out these relational roles in a way that does truly glorify God and reflects who he is to the world? Husbands, what does it look like to be a good head? Wives, what does it look like to be a good helper in that way? We've obviously messed this up in unimaginable ways through history. Our attempts at this have have been fallen and broken and abusive. But Paul reminds us in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 11 that the only way to be faithful in your God-given role is to look to someone who, who is greater than you and who fulfilled that role perfectly. That's why he says, be imitators of Christ. Husbands, do you want to see what proper headship looks like? Look to Jesus. Imitate him. Wives, do you want to see what it actually looks like to submit to your, to your husband? Look to Jesus and imitate him. Because back to verse 3, we see that Christ is both the model for husbands and wives. He's both the model uh, of being ahead and both the perfect model of being submissive. He's the ultimate example of, of good headship and he's the ultimate example of being in perfect submission. And Jesus says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of my Father. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before being crucified, you know what Jesus says. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So he's submitting to his Father's will. He's, in Philippians 2, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's this ultimate example of being equal in essence and being, but joyfully following the lead of his father. Ephesians 5, Paul shows us that, that marriage, the point of marriage is actually to reflect Christ's relationship with his church. Don't forget that. Married people in the room, the point of your marriage is to show the world how Jesus loves his church. And in verse 25, he says, husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which you all know is an ex- extraordinary love, a love that, as we see, led him to the cross. This is what I want you to see today. Christ as head 
led him to his self-sacrifice and death on the cross. Christ in submission led him to his self-sacrifice and death on the cross. That's what both submission and headship look like. Is, is there more to be said about how we operate and live out these roles? Sure. But the, most importantly, what I want you to see is how Jesus was faithful in both those roles and how they both led him to the cross. As both men and women living in our God-imaging roles and differences, we are both called to self-sacrifice, other-centeredness, and giving up ourselves for the good of the other. Husbands and wives, look to the cross for your ultimate and perfect example of fulfilling your God-given roles. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, just like we prayed at the beginning, we need you. Oh, we are so lost without you, Lord. Every day, the temptation is to forget the gospel, throw it out, and start to glorify ourselves, start to follow our own heart, these wandering hearts. Jesus, we need you. We thank you, Lord, for being our perfect example in life. We thank you for, by being a perfect example in our life, you've made this way for us to follow in your footsteps in an imperfect way, failing at it. But we do so um, by remembering grace, by remembering your mercy. Lord, help us to uh, conform to your ways, Lord. Um, just pray for, uh, for our church as we discuss these things, things that aren't necessarily the center uh, of everything for us. You are the center of everything for us. You, Jesus, on the cross, crucified on our behalf, is everything. We have these kind of other things that we can start to discuss and, and maybe even disagree on, Lord, but um, I pray for unity for our church. I pray for you to be glorified. I pray for hearts to be changed. I pray for us to become more humble. I pray for us to, to understand each other more, for us to love one another more, for us to begin to not seek our own good and cling on to our, our own rights, but to open our hands, to seek the good of the other, And to reveal to the, to the world, Lord, what your love looks like. You're so good to us, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.